today we're going to have to put our thinking caps on, which we've really had to do every sermon in, in John so far is, is really called upon our minds to think through the mysteries of the Trinity and now today the mysteries of the Incarnation. Maybe that's a big word, incarnation, but we're going to talk about what that means. Jesus, uh, or God, the Son, Jesus Christ, becoming flesh. But hopefully we're not just going to leave it at dusty doctrine, which is not what it is. We're going to see today how these mysteries, how these doctrinal truths have implications for the Christian life. We need to make sure we connect these biblical ideas, these biblical truths with what it actually means to be a Christian on Monday and then Tuesday, what it means to be the people of God, worshiping together, living together. So verse 14, which is the heart of the first 18 verses, the theme, if you will, the theme verse And the word became flesh or became human and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. We looked at it. We beheld it. Glory as of the only begotten from the father. That means the only son of from the father coming from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, the word that John is talking about is the word from verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's coming back to the Word here. The Word is the eternal God. He existed in eternity with God, and he existed in eternity as God. The Word is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The Trinity is one one God, but three persons, right? Father. Son and Holy Spirit. Not just one person and not three gods, one God and three persons. And another name for the Son is the Word. Of course, Jesus Christ is another name for the Son or the Word as well. And there was never a time when the Word did not exist. That's what we've seen in this passage so far. And John hits at it again in verse 15 as he Quotes from John the Baptist. The word was there in the beginning. Because he was already there in eternity. He was there in the beginning and he created everything. Verse 3 says that everything that was made was made through him. If it can be considered created or made, then Jesus made it. Which means he was not made. He was not created. The word is God the son. And yet verse 14 says that the eternal word, the eternal God became human, became flesh. Like you and me. God the son took flesh upon himself. He put on our humanity, our human flesh But he didn't just wear it as a layer on the outside. He became one of us. This is called the incarnation. The word 
incarnation refers to God taking on human flesh. That word carnation there has the idea of flesh. To say that the Son of God became incarnate is to say that he became flesh. And so what we're talking about here is what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. And when the word took on human flesh, he didn't just become partially human. Like I said, it wasn't just a layer on the outside. He didn't just partly become human. He's not part human and then part God. And then you add them both up and it's 100%. He's not 50% God and 50% man or 90% God and 10% man or anything like that. God the Son became fully human in every way. He became 100% human. That's the mystery. But he did this without ceasing to be God. When God the Son took upon flesh, when he took flesh upon himself, he became fully human, human without ceasing to be fully God. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is 100% God and 100% human. But he's not 200%. He did not lose any of his godness when he took on human flesh and then lived among us as a man. The text actually makes this clear. This is not just theology, necessary theology. It is, but the text makes this clear. Look at verse 14. What is the subject of the verb dwelt? Dwelt means lived. Who dwelt among us? Who lived among us? It's the word. The word did. In other words, God did. The word is the subject of the verb dwelt means that God is the one who is living among us, who lived among us, I should say. None other than God, not part of God, but God, the word, the eternal word is the subject of that verb. So when it says that God became flesh, the same word became flesh. It's not saying that he stopped being God in any way and became a mere human named Jesus Christ. The text doesn't allow that. The grammar doesn't allow it. Verse 14 says the person walking around among us for about 33 years, about 2,000 years ago, the person who was born of the Virgin Mary, person who suffered and died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he is now, is God, fully God. That is what the church has believed and confessed from the beginning. From the earliest time, including the time the scriptures were being written and lived out the history that are in the that is in the scriptures. And we're going to see why this foundation is essential. We can't budge on it. We have to. Know it. We need to think about it, meditate on it, believe it, get it into our bones, because when it gets into our bones, then it can come out. We can live it out in the way the Bible says, particularly in Philippians 2, and we'll get there in a minute. Now, you might be wondering why verse 14 uses the word as. 
It says that the glory of Jesus Christ is as of the only begotten of the Father. We saw his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father. Why does John, why does he use the word as here? How is it functioning? Is he saying that the glory of Jesus is only like the glory of God, like as the glory of the eternal Son of God, so that it's not really him? No, as is, it's one of those words that it's very flexible, both in English and in Greek, pretty much the same. It's There's a lot of commonality in the way the words work. And so as we think about this word in English, um, we can we can figure it out. We don't have to know Greek here. Let me give you an example of how as is being used here. Imagine that a man says of his wife, I chose this woman as the one I wanted to marry. Chose her as my first choice, something like that. I chose her as the one I wanted to marry. Is, is, does he mean that the woman he chose is like the woman he wanted to marry? No, not if he's a faithful man. He's saying that the woman he chose is, in fact, the woman that he wanted to marry. He chose her as the one. She is the one. Something similar is going on here in verse 14. The glory as of the only son from the father truly is the glory of the only begotten son from the father. It's not just like it. It's it. Glory of Jesus Christ is the glory of the eternal word. The real deal. The glory of God. The glory of Christ is the glory of God. And actually, verse 14 requires this interpretation early Earlier in verse 14, John says, and we beheld his glory. So I'm going to make another grammatical point here. We saw his glory. Whose glory? Who's the his referring back to? Whose glory did they see in Jesus? The the glory they saw in Jesus is the glory of the eternal word. It is the glory of of that word who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who was and is God. That's the glory they saw, his glory, not the glory of a mere man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. They saw in Jesus the glory of God. The glory of Jesus Christ, you see, is divine glory, not mere Human glory. Jesus is fully God in every sense. And Paul affirms this truth in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, verse 9, he says, For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. It's Colossians 2, 9. In other words, all of God's godness is present, living in, dwelling in, The God-man, Jesus Christ. God the Son became fully human without ceasing to be fully God. Another verse that confirms this is Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. God is with us in the person of Jesus Jesus Christ is God with us. He's God in the flesh. 
He became one of us, and his name is Jesus Christ. So what this means is that Jesus has two natures. Okay, This is going to get a little bit technical, theological here, but it's necessary. Jesus Christ has two natures, a divine nature, God nature, and a human nature. But we have to be clear, he's not two persons. He's one person with two natures. One person, two natures. So this is another mystery, kind of like the Trinity. Uh, Not like it in every way, but similar in the sense that we, we can't really get our mind wrapped around it completely. There's going to be mysteries even when we've gone as far as we can go. The Trinity is one God, one being, one divine being, three persons. Well, Jesus is one of those three persons, but within him is two natures, or he is composed of uh, two natures. It's hard to understand, but necessary to confess. Now, you and I, for comparison, we are one person. And one nature. So we're one person like Jesus, but we're one nature, human. We have a human nature. But God, the Son, has two natures, divine and human. It's interesting to think about this. Let's just think about who Jesus is for a minute. It's kind of interesting. Maybe you've never thought about this, but the Son of God did not always have two natures, right? Before he became human, he only had one nature, the nature of God. But now he has two natures and he will always have two natures. Having one nature, the son of God will always be both fully God and fully man. He will always have those two natures. He will never cease to be God and he will never cease to be human. Think about that. Now, in verse 15, the gospel writer allows John the Baptist to bear witness to the word made flesh. You'll notice that John the Baptist is not referred to in John's gospel as John the Baptist in this in this passage. He's just referred to as John because um, for for the gospel writer, he's he's John the witness. The word witness is constantly used. With reference to John the Baptist. He's, he's a witness. And you'll notice he, these couple times he, he's interrupting his flow, the gospel writer is, to insert a word from John, the witness, John the Baptist. And it's as if he's saying in literary form, okay, John was the witness and here I'm going to let him have the mic. Here's a word from the witness. And here he's, he does it again in verse 15. John the Baptist is the witness, and he says of Jesus, he cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me takes precedence over me, for he was before me. Now everybody knows that John, the witness, the Baptist, was born before Jesus. And everybody knows that John began his ministry Before Jesus began his ministry. So in those two ways. John came first. 
So in case there's a lack of clarity here, John is saying, no, in reality, even though I came onto the scene first, and I'm a few months older in terms of birth, Jesus is more important. He comes first. He's preferred. He is the one that I'm pointing you to. And even though I was born first, he existed first. That's the significance of that last phrase in verse 15. For he was before me. Do you see how he's echoing the first uh, first verse there? The word was God. That's, that's John's way of trying to find words to say he's eternal. He is God. And so John here is saying he was before me. We have to hear that echo there. The son of God in the flesh was before John because he's God. And he's existed forever. And so John is bearing witness to the truth of the incarnation. John, the gospel writer, is calling on John, the witness, to to proclaim, to cry out the truth that he's trying to get across to us in verses 14 to 18, really in verses 1 to 18, really in his whole gospel. John is bearing witness to the incarnation. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. So what does all this mean for us? This is a lot of theology, a lot of rich, biblical, historic, orthodox theology. But what's the incarnation have to do with our life, our practical living how we love one another, how we live with one another. What's it mean in terms of our salvation that God has accomplished through the incarnation of Jesus? Why is it important? Well, the first thing the incarnation means, we're going to talk about a few things here, but the first thing it means, the incarnation, is that we can be saved. It makes it possible. Jesus Christ can be your Savior only because He is both God and man. If Jesus were only God and not human, He could not have taken on your sins, the sins of humanity. You see, the punishment for humanity's sin, for your sin, had to be inflicted on humanity for God's justice to be upheld. It is mankind that sinned against God. It is the descendants of Adam, Adam and his descendants, who are in rebellion against God, at odds with God, at enmity with God, under God's judgment, by nature, Children of wrath. The children of Adam are by nature children of wrath. So God must pour out his wrath. He's going to uphold his truth, his righteousness, his justice. He's going to pour out his wrath on man. So if one person is going to take upon himself the punishment that one or more humans Deserve, then that one person must himself be fully human. God is going to impute our sin to someone else 
going to be one of us. At the same time, if Jesus were merely human and not God, that wouldn't have worked either. The punishment for humanity's sin had to be inflicted on a perfectly righteous person. The sacrifice for our sin had to be a sinless sacrifice, spotless, without blemish. If Jesus had been a mere human person, a mere descendant of Adam, then he would have inherited Adam's sin. Not just humanity, he would have inherited sin. And then he would have not been able to save us from our sins because he would have had sin himself. He would have been guilty himself. He would have been in Adam himself. So in order to save his people, Jesus Christ had to be fully God and fully man in a real way on both sides of that. For you to be saved, the God-man had to go to the cross. No one else could have done it for you and for me. So he's not just God. He's not just a man, but the God-man. Perfect human because he's God in the flesh. So the first thing that the incarnation means is that you can be saved. Salvation is possible. The incarnation is essential to your salvation. It hinges on the truth of the incarnation. You're saved only because the Son of God became fully human without ceasing to be fully God. And here's the second thing the incarnation means. It means that we should humble ourselves and look to the interests of others. Let me say that again. The incarnation means that we should humble ourselves and look to the interests of others. That's what Philippians 2, our epistle lesson, teaches us. Paul bases, did you notice what he, what he does there in Philippians 2? He bases his exhortation to the Philippian Christians on the reality of the incarnation, on the truth of the incarnation, that it happened is essential to what he's telling them to, to then go and do and be. Jesus humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Therefore, you must do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to his father, even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, you must look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the logic. That's Paul's logic in Philippians 2. And it's implicit in John 1 and explicit throughout the gospel. Let me read verses 3 to 8 of Philippians 2. You can just listen. 
Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now he's giving us why he's telling us to do this. Here's the basis for my exhortation. Because it was the mind that Christ had, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be used to his own advantage, a thing to be hung on to when it got tough and appealed to, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God humbled himself by becoming human and then by dying on a cross for your sins. In light of that, how could you ever be proud? How is it possible for us to be proud when we consider God's humility? If God is humble... How could we be proud ever? How much sense does that make? God humbled himself for the sake of the world, the world that hated him and that rejected him. In light of that, how could you ever be more focused on your own interests than you are on the interests of others, on the interest of Christ and his kingdom? You see, the doctrine of the incarnation is not just a dead, dry, theological concept. Not at all. If we perceive it that way, it's our problem, not the Bible's, because it's powerful if we understand it. It's the basis for transformation in human relationships. It's the basis for knowing how to live faithfully with one another. The incarnation means... That you must put your wife's interests before your own. Not because she deserves it. but Because you want to be humble like Jesus. Jesus put your interests before his own. You didn't deserve it. The incarnation means that you must esteem everyone in this room. As better than yourself, more important than yourself. If you can't do that, if you find that perspective difficult, if you don't really know how you could possibly consider everyone it's more important than yourself, then according to Philippians 2 3, the problem is that you're short on lowliness of mind and long on self ambition and conceit. Arrogance, pride, that kind of a thing. Here's the third thing that the incarnation means. It means you get God's overflowing grace. And this is bringing us back more explicitly to our text. God's glory in Jesus Christ is full of what? Full of grace and truth. And it's so full of grace, it's so full of his truth 
that it's spilling over. It's grace upon grace, and then more grace is given through Jesus. Grace and truth are spilling out so that we're receiving grace on top of grace when we are in Jesus, when we're looking to him, trusting in him. It's one blessing after another. From his fullness we have received even grace upon grace. There's an endless supply of grace in Jesus. See, the law was given through Moses. And there was grace there, too. But the fullness of grace and truth comes in abundance in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he didn't come as a judge. He came full of grace and truth. John three seventeen says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He will judge the world when he comes back the second time. He will come as judge then. But the first time, he doesn't come to condemn. He comes full of grace and truth. And we receive from the fullness of grace and truth that is in him. Receive grace and then more grace. And the grace that we receive in Jesus, it's shaped by truth. It's not grace apart from truth. What's that mean? It's grace rooted in truth. It's not cheap grace that compromises the truth. It is costly grace. That vindicates the truth. Jesus is full of both grace and truth. And what's that mean? Well, the grace of God is God's mercy and his compassion, his patience, his forgiveness. We read about it in our Old Testament lesson, especially when we get to chapter 34 there. End of 33 He's full of compassion. He's full of mercy, graciousness and truth, goodness and truth, it says which is synonymous with grace and truth. The idea is the same as here. John is borrowing that. You can see how John's borrowing the themes from Exodus 33 and 34. You know, Moses wanted to see God's glory. Moses wants, needs God's goodness, his faithfulness, his truth, his grace. When God does not give to you what you deserve, and then he does give you what you don't deserve at the same time, that is God's grace. But you see, it's not sentimental grace. God God doesn't just say to you, well, I know you've sinned. I know you're a sinner. You're against me and you deserve my wrath. But because I'm full of compassion, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to let bygones be bygones. It's water under the bridge between you and me. That's my mercy. Is that what God says? Is that what God's grace looks like? Not at all. If he were to say that, then he would 
be compromising his faithfulness to himself. He'd be compromising the truth. That word truth in Exodus 34, which John is borrowing from, it's referring to God's faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness to us and to himself, his righteousness, his glory. And so truth is God's faithfulness to that glory, his worthiness, his righteousness. Truth is God's commitment to uphold justice, to punish humans that defame his glory by sinning against him. God does not show grace that is void of truth. He shows us grace that is governed by truth, driven by truth, faithful to the truth, that does not compromise the truth, but vindicates the truth. See, God's truth, his righteousness means he's true to us as people and he's true to himself and he's going to do what it takes to be true to his promises, his grace, and his justice. And so what we need to see here is the grace that we receive from the fullness of Christ is grace that flows straight from the cross. The cross is central to understanding this. The cross is the only place where God's grace and God's truth can live together, can stand together. It's at the cross. God's justice requires God's wrath against sinners. And the cross is where God's wrath against sinners, is poured out and satisfied in full. The, the cross, you see, makes true grace possible. The only reason God could be gracious to those old covenant saints is that the cross was coming. His son was coming in the flesh. Without the cross, grace would not be true grace. It would just be sentimental feeling that compromises the truth. The cross brings God's truth and God's grace together. It makes it an uncompromising grace. So without it, the cross, the truth would not be gracious truth. And without the cross, truth would just be the hold, cold, hard truth of God's judgment against your sin. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, God's grace abounded and God's truth abounded. God's truth was upheld. The glory of Christ is full of grace and truth. The glory of Christ is the cross. That's what we need to see here. The glory that John and the other disciples saw. The glory that they beheld, the glory that they looked at is a glory that was shining its brightest. While the son of God was hanging on a cross and dying in agony. Let me say that again. The the glory that John and the other disciples 
saw. The glory that they beheld is a glory that was shining the brightest when the Son of God was hanging on a cross and dying in agony. So don't make the mistake of thinking that the glory of Jesus could be seen by just the eyeballs in their head. There was nothing glorious about Jesus' appearance, right? Isaiah 53, 2, there was no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was a normal-looking guy, just like one of us. You could miss him if you didn't know. His glory couldn't be seen with physical eyes alone. It had to be seen with the eyes of faith. The Bible says that everybody has two sets of eyes. We have the the eyes in our head, the physical eyes. And we have the eyes in our heart. Ephesians 1.8 says that believers have had the eyes of their hearts enlightened. So they can see. The lights come in to the eyes of their hearts and they can see. Once the eyes of your heart are open and they're filled with that light, then you will be able to see the glory of Jesus for what it is. And then you'll be able to see it more and more as you grow in that light, in that grace. Without that light, when you look at Jesus, you don't see the glory. A lot of people saw Jesus with their eyeballs in their head and they didn't see any glory. Many of them killed him. Without the light, you don't see any glory. You just see someone maybe who is a mere human. You see someone possibly even that kind of makes you upset or uncomfortable with the way he does things. Maybe you see someone you would like to kill or crucify. The light that you need to see the glory of Jesus is the light of life. And the Christian life is one of growing in that light. So that the light floods more and more of the dark places in your heart. Remember back up in verse 4 it says, In him was life and that life was the light of men and that light shines in the darkness. It shines in our hearts so that our eyes, the eyes of our heart, can see, so that they can believe in Jesus, trust him, and walk in him in faithfulness. Verse 18, as we near the end of this, verse 18 says that Jesus Christ declares Maybe we could say explains who the Father is. No one has seen God, John says. And and what he's saying here, remember he just mentioned Moses. He kind of like inserts Moses in there. And what, what's he doing with Moses? Well, we, we see that he's taking themes from Moses, the glory and the, the grace and the truth that God showed Moses in part. He's taking those things. But one of the themes in that passage is not being able to see God, right? Moses couldn't see God's face. Now, early, now you might be confused because in, chapter, in Exodus 33, it says that he talked with, to God face as a man talks to another face to face. But what we find out is that's not literal. 
or at least it's not in its fullness. So he was, God was still veiling himself when he was showing Moses his glory and, and talking to him intimately, and you could call it face-to-face in that way. Face-to-face was sort of an idiomatic way of talking about intimacy. Because what we find out in Exodus 34 is that he hadn't, he hasn't, he hadn't seen the fullness of God's face. And if he did, he would die. And so when God does bring his full glory into Moses' presence, the fullness of his glory, or at least a fuller version of it, he has to, he has to cover up Moses because he can't see his face in all of its glory. And so John picks up on that. He says, no one's seen God. No one's seen that full glory. Not even Moses got to see it. And Moses is the one who got to see God more than anyone else in the Old Testament. If you, if, if you want, you know, who, who's the person in the Old Testament who, who kind of fought their way into God's presence and got to see the most of God? Well, Moses and then maybe Isaiah or Ezekiel. But Moses is at the top. So Moses was not allowed to see the full glory of God. But if you've seen Jesus, John says, then you, you've seen God's glory. You're seeing something that Moses didn't get to see. The more you fix your eyes on Jesus, the beginner and finisher of your faith, the more you are fixing your eyes on God's true glory. Glory that was hidden even from Moses. Because this glory is the incarnate glory of the only begotten Son from the Father. It's the glory of the Word. The glory of God. And so, as you see Jesus, as you behold Jesus, as you fix your eyes on Jesus... You are seeing more and more of God's glory. The glory of the Father is in the Son. And Jesus says later in the gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, he, he came in flesh. He, he took on flesh because he's still, he's still veiling Some of that glory, right? We're going to see it more and more as we grow in Christ. We're going to see it more at the end of history when he returns. We get more. There's more to come. And even in the incarnation, he is kind of... If he had come without veiling the fullness of his glory in flesh, then everyone would have died. So there's a grace even in the incarnation as we think about God... But the incarnation, Jesus came to begin unveiling that glory, to begin showing us more and more of the glory of God, which is full of grace and truth, goodness and faithfulness. So when you look at Jesus, is that what you see? Do you see glory? Do you see glory that's full of grace and truth? Or do you just see someone who doesn't do it your way? What's your response to God's glory in Christ? Do you love it? Do you hunger and thirst for more of it? 
Do you want get do you want to get closer to the center of it or does it kind of repel you? When you read about Jesus in the Gospels, do you see a glory that's full of grace and truth? When you look at the cross, do you see a glory that's full of grace and truth there? Grace overflowing, grace upon grace. Are you receiving that grace and truth? Are you trusting in it or are you trusting in yourself? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have made your glory known to us in Jesus. Help us to see that glory. Help us to see, to understand your grace and your truth. And we thank you that you have promised even more glory to come. That even as we see dimly now, one day, we will see you face to face and see it fully. Help us to walk in the light, to be children of the light. In Jesus' name, amen.